This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Last August, amidst the news chatter about the presidential elections, gas prices, and rising unemployment rates, and right as we were all getting ready to watch the Beijing Olympics, something very strange started to happen. Russian warplanes hit targets deep inside Georgia early this morning, bombing an airfield near the capital, Tbilisi, a town near the South Ossetian border, and military bases in eastern Georgia. Russian Navy ships in the Black Sea have moved into position to blockade the Georgian coast. We begin with the escalating conflict today between Russia and Georgia. There is word from Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin that there will be no ceasefire. Russia has invaded a sovereign neighboring state and threatens a democratic government elected by its nations and effectively cut the country in half. And a U.S. official accused Moscow of planning the offensive months ago and positioning troops in Georgia under the guise of conducting a humanitarian mission. Now vital pipelines carrying crude oil and gas are under threat. Ammunition and other military supplies to aid a Russian invasion. For a few terrifying days, Georgia was at the top of the news 24 hours a day. But then, thousands of displacements and hundreds of deaths later, the armed clash between Georgia and Russia was over. Not, though, before we'd heard the phrases World War III and Russian invasion bandied around enough to reawaken some of our worst Cold War fears. But what actually happened this summer? And why did it happen? Beth Noble covered Russia for CBS News and other news outlets for almost two decades. And although she's now teaching journalism at Fordham, she was called back during this summer's conflict. Noble joins me in the studio this morning to talk about the war, what led up to it, and why she thinks it's much more about respect than you might have imagined. Beth Noble, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Nora. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, let's just start with the basics. What happened this summer between Russia and Georgia? Mm-hmm. Well, when most people think about what happened, they think, okay, well, a war broke out. And I'll give you the whole backstory. What actually happened in August is that there was a very short little war between Georgia and Russia. And uh, the Georgians sort of say, we didn't start this. But having covered it for CBS, I think most people agree that the first shots here were fired by the Georgians, that they attacked um a town that's inside of Georgia in a region called South Ossetia. The Georgians seem to have attacked first, and the Russians crossed the border from Russia into Georgia and protected those people who were being attacked uh, by the Georgians, most of whom actually have Russian citizenship, and pushed the Georgians out of that region. And uh, let's face it, the Georgian uh, military isn't really much of a Um, an obstacle for the Russian military for lots of different reasons. And so the Russian military pushed the Georgians back, and then they sort of seemed to say, well, I wonder how far we could go. And they kept driving towards the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi. And they got about more than halfway there. And then they sort of stopped because they realized that they could just overrun the country if they wanted to. And they were making a point Um, everyone seems to think that, you know, we could very easily overrun your whole country. We won't, but we're going to show you that we can and that if you think that you can take us on militarily, you're sorely mistaken. So that's the military part of, of what happened. But 
what was interesting is there were, there were two things going on at the same time. First of all, there was a, a military war going on in Georgian territory, and that was pretty straightforward. And so there was a military war going on, and then there was a PR war going on where the Georgians said, poor little Georgia, you know, we're being overrun by big bad Russia. We're a poor little democracy, and we're for freedom, and we're for, for, uh, for capitalism. And all you folks in the West, we really need your help because we're being overrun by the big bad enemy. And even though the the Russians won on the ground, the Georgians really seemed to win the PR victory and that they are the ones that really got the um, the sympathies of people in the West and, and in America. And again, that's not something that happened during the war either. America has actually been giving hundreds of mil- millions of dollars in aid a year to Georgia, uh, economic aid and military aid. There have been uh, military advisors in Georgia for several years. Americans are going to tr- train the Georgian army. And that was something that the Bush administration began um, to show its support for the young Georgian democracy. And also because it was so the country so strategically placed right on the southern border of Russia. What's really interesting is that the president of, uh, of Georgia, whose name is Mikhail Saakashvili, he understood that part of this war was going to be fought in the world of public opinion. And he made himself available for interviews almost 24 hours a day. He just was on TV endlessly giving out the Georgian point of view. And of course, uh, if he was talking to Americans or Brits or Australians, he could do it in English. His English is is really near fluent. And he was able to make a, a really strong case for why, you know, Georgia was in the right in this case. And the Russians just didn't do as good a job as putting out someone to plead their case and, and explain to the to the world why they thought they were justified in crossing into Georgia to protect uh, Russian citizens there. And so, um, you know, President Saakashvili really l- let the Russians have it and, and said to the West, you know, this is a dangerous country and it's really aggressive and all of you are going to feel its aggression unless you come in here and help us. Tell me a little bit more about the situation with Russia and Georgia and South Ossetia. This is um, an area, South Ossetia, um, is right on the border with Russia. And the people in there are mostly Ossetians, which is a nationality. They're actually Christians, and they're in that Caucasus Mountain area. Those people, the Ossetians, were kind of cut right down the middle. Um, Lenin and and then um, Joseph Stalin after him, the Soviet leaders sort of put people into ethnic homelands. So the Ossetians were all kind of in one area together. And then that area got cut in half um, in Soviet days, and half of that area got placed in Russia, and half of that area got placed in Georgia. When it was all one country, when it was part of the Soviet Union, it didn't really matter very much. But when the Soviet Union fell apart at the end of 1991, those people ended up in two different countries. So you might have families literally on two sides of a border, or everybody had uncles and cousins and aunts and grandmothers on one side or the other. And so you can sort of understand why the Ossetians have sort of said, look, we, we really don't want to be part of Georgia. We're, we're ethnically different than you guys are. We want to be with our families in on the other side of the border. We want to basically we want to be in Russia. That's where we belong. And so since the 1920s, those people in Ossetia have fought. This is now their third war that they fought to basically try to get their independence from Georgia. And uh, the war sort of usually uh, end in stalemates. And it's become a real headache, not only for Russia and for Georgia, but for a lot of countries that have strategic interests there, um, most of all the United States. 
Um, as I've said, the U.S. has given hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to the Georgia. The Bush administration has been very strong supporter of Georgia. Um, I've heard from, from people that um, President Saakashvili, because he's an English speaker and very charismatic, that he and President Bush have really struck up a, a, a very good relationship with each other. And um, one of the, the the root causes of this conflict, other than the fact that these people aren't ethnic Georgians and really don't want to be part of Georgia, is that the Russians really, really resent the help that the United States has been given Georgia. Let me actually interrupt you there and ask you, I have to say my first thought when I started hearing about this is why is this a worldwide story? Why is the U.S. getting so involved? Why is Russia so involved? What's going on here? Well, some people have said that, you know, it's a proxy war, that Georgia is backed by the U.S. and that Georgia wouldn't dare go up against Russia unless it was receiving help from the U.S. And the issue of U.S. help to Georgia has really been a thorn in Russia's side. The Russians, Russians really, truly resent the help that the Bush administration uh, is giving to Georgia. And I think that they're really, the Russians are really angry that their side of the story really wasn't accepted by the world community at first. You know, they they kept saying, um, and, and I kept hearing from them covering this conflict during the summer for CBS, the, the Russians kept saying, look, those are our citizens, and we needed to go in there and protect them from harm's way. And listen, Western countries, you would do the same thing. America, you attacked Iraq when you didn't even have your own citizens there. You did that to protect yourselves. So, you know, how dare you criticize us for doing the same things that you think you have a right to do? You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is Beth Noble. Noble's an assistant professor in Fordham's Communication and Media Studies Department, and for many years she reported from Moscow for CBS News. She was called back this summer to report on the war between Russia and Georgia, and that's what we're talking about on the show today. I asked Noble to give me some background on how this war came to happen. One of the things that's going on is um, a process that's going on inside of Georgia, which is that um, President Saakashvili came in to find a country that was very um, fragmented, that there were several areas of Georgia that were basically autonomous and not taking any rule from the center. And one of the pledges he made when he became president um, was that he, as, as part of the so-called Rose Revolution in 2003, he said, I'm going to try to get this country under one command again. I'm going to go to all of these rebel regions and sort of say, look, we want you to be part of Georgia. We want to be one unified country again. What can we do to bring you back into the fold? So he went to one region. He you know, literally drove up in the tanks himself, called the Jaria, uh, also on the Black Sea, but closer to the Turkish border. And um, the Jarian sort of said, OK, 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 we don't want a war. We'll, we'll be back in. So that kind of emboldened President Saakashvili. Okay, this is this is going great, and um, and then he tried to approach South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and both of those regions, and sort of instead of saying, okay, we want to be part of Georgia, said, you know, look, we're just we're not Georgians, we're just not ethnic Georgians, we just really don't want to be part of your country, and there's really not much you can do to induce us to be part of your country. And uh, that wasn't really the answer that uh, President Saakashvili probably wanted to hear. And so there have been rumbles of war 
um, going back pretty much almost to the time that he became president. But there hasn't been any kind of real successful political process to try to get those regions to stay part of Georgia. At the same time, um, Russia, until about four months ago when this financial crisis started, has been getting stronger and bolder. And they were really saying to the world community, you know, we, we really want a little respect. You know, we, we were talked down to in the 90s a lot after the end of communism. You know, you, you Americans and you Europeans were always coming to us and sort of talking down to us about what democracy is all about. You know, we really don't need your lessons anymore. We're our own country. We have our own interests. We have lots of money. Our pockets are full. We've got oil. We've got gas. You know, we've got the natural resources that, that you want now, actually. So if you want our oil and you want our gas and you want our diamonds, then please give us some respect. Why this show of strength? Why continue to go in after the initial goal had already been accomplished? Because they wanted to prove a point. They wanted to prove that point not only to Georgia, but to several other countries nearby and even to to uh, uh, regions inside Russia that might be anti-government. Now, remember, the whole North Caucasus, although it's been pretty quiet lately, there's Chechnya and Ingushetia, Dagestan, and all of these small republics where there's a lot of actual... Um, Islamic fundamentalism. Uh, I don't think nobody can forget the war um, in Chechnya that dragged through the 90s and, and into this uh, this decade where um, tens of thousands of people were killed over Chechen independence. And the, it took that insurrection, it took the Russians years to put that down. And now Chechnya is being controlled by pro-Russian Chechens and is pretty quiet. But there's also um, countries like Ukraine, which is uh, also on Russia's southern flank, is traditionally a country that would be part of the you know great Slavic um, nationality. And yet Ukraine has been very Western-leading. They also, like Georgia, have asked um, for a path to NATO membership. And their close relationship with the West and their, their orientation towards the West is, is something that is is really infuriating to the Russians. You know, they sort of say to Ukraine, "Look, you're you're Slavs. You're like us. You speak Russian. People speak Ukrainian, which is a dial. You know, very close to to Russian. We're like each other. We should be partnering with you. Why are you going to the West instead of to us?" And that's that's really infuriated the Russians. And so the show of force that they put into Georgia, many analysts feel it was was to teach Georgia lesson, and it was to teach. Countries like Ukraine, a lesson about how strong what it, it, the Russian army is. It was a lesson to places like Chechnya to say, hey, you know what? We may have taken years to quell Chechnya, but, you know, we've really learned how to fight now. And nobody in, inside Russia should doubt that either. But most of all, it was a signal to the West, I think, um, to say, you know, we are still a military power and you need to pay attention to us and you need to give us some respect. I'm sorry. I can't. <laughs> the first thing that comes to my mind, honestly, like talking about this and reading about this is that these countries are just acting like big children. <laughs> I don't I, that that's not really a question. It's just kind of why? You know? Well, you know, I bet um, if you uh, were able to talk to people in the State Department, you know, um, off the record, they might say the same thing. Um, you know, I, I just know from having lived in Russia for 14 years and, and covered it for um, for the Los Angeles Times and for CBS and some other people that um, this issue of respect is, is just really important to the Russian leadership. The Russians really feel like they've they've come a long way and that, you know, 
that they are a success story. Um, you know, at least up until the last four months, they've been very, very badly hit by the financial crisis. Um, oligarchs have lost billions and billions of dollars, as have Russian companies. And so um, the the economy there is now on much shakier ground than it was, say, even six months ago. But the Russians sort of say, look, you know, we have become capitalist. We have companies those companies, um, you know, have international accounting standards. Um, they turn out gas. They turn out oil. They turn out timber and diamonds and gold and other things that people need. We turn out cars that people want to drive. We turn out food that people want to eat. You know, we are, you know, a, a top nation. And the fact that they were admitted um, into the G8 sort of is a sign of that. Remember, it was the G7 for a while, and it wasn't until um, – President Clinton, I believe, lobbied to include um, Russia into that group as a sign of respect because there were um, economies that were larger than Russia's, but Russia was the one that was chosen to come into that group. And that was the kind of sign of respect for what was going on in Russia that, that the Russians really appreciated. How does the oil pipeline that goes through Georgia playing into all this? Well, there is a, an oil pipeline that was basically privately funded, and it goes from the Caspian Sea, which is a landlocked sea where there is a lot of oil, um, to uh, the Mediterranean Sea where that oil, which is not landlocked and which can then be put into tankers and taken away. A lot of people contributed to the cost of that pipeline, lots of different companies and governments, because the existing pipeline network all went through Russia. And people said, look, we if we're really going to develop the huge um, oil and gas reserves in the Caspian Sea, we need a way to get the oil out of there that doesn't involve Russia, because we don't want the Russians to say – be able to dictate policy. And so at a cost of billions of dollars, um, a pipeline was built from Azerbaijan um, going through Georgia into Turkey. And so there were some reports that that pipeline was hit during the war, although I never actually saw um, any convincing evidence that that had been true. And apparently the pipeline had been closed. Uh, there was no oil in the pipeline at the time. They were doing maintenance on it. But People say that this war was about oil, and I personally don't believe it. But that is a very strategic pipeline that's that's going through Georgia. And since this war, there's now really some doubt about whether that economic pipeline is going to be viable. The reason is that there are several countries on the, the Caspian with control over the oil and gas. One of them is Kazakhstan, which is a very close ally of Russia. And the Russians are pressuring the Kazakhs to not use that pipeline that goes through Georgia. They have basically said to them, look, help us out here, Kazakhs. Send your oil through Russia instead of sending it through Georgia because we're your friends and they're not. And so there's actually been a, a cancellation of uh, a lot of Kazakh business projects in uh, Georgia, things like uh, oil refineries. And um, the last I heard, the, the Kazakhs were not planning to put any oil into that pipeline through Georgia. And that could really sort of be the straw that breaks the camel's back. But I, again, um, you know, I'm, I'm not clear if there's actually been a decision on this. But were the Kazakhs to not put any oil in that pipeline through Georgia, it would really be a, a, 
a very difficult thing for the economic viability of that pipeline. But one can certainly see why the U.S. would be very interested in having this viable pipeline and have an interest in protecting Georgia. Well, absolutely. And, you know, um, all of the other investors who put money in that pipeline. I mean, lots of Western companies, uh, you know, have money in that in that pipeline because they want to make sure that Russia can't dictate uh, what's gone on. And, and it sort of makes sense if you look at Russia's um, continuing behavior that it's it's repeatedly used natural gas as a weapon. Um, you know, when re- Ukraine um, has been punished, basically, for not towing the, lo- the line by Russia, um, Russia has at times cut off gas payments to, to Ukraine and to Belarus, and that affects the flow of gas going to Europe, so the Europeans don't get the gas that they need. And it is a potentially potent weapon, um, really. On, in a cold winter, people want their houses to be warm. And if Russia were to cut gas supplies and people were out in the cold, you would imagine that the people would make it clear to their governments that they weren't they were not happy about what's going on. And so it's a double-edged sword, isn't it, for Russia? On the one hand, it does have this uh, these additional powers because some European countries are so dependent on, on their oil and gas exports. On the other hand, if they were to try to use that card, the people might actually turn against Russia and, and their image, which is already a bit precarious for, for lots of different reasons, might really suffer even more. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a peek into the history of some of Broadway's theaters. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Beth Noble. One thing that happened during this whole period during the summer when this was going on that worried me and I think a lot of people was you started to see this sort of Cold War rhetoric. Why did that happen? Why is that reemerging now? This Cold War rhetoric is, one, it's it's sort of what both sides know. You know, it's sort of what they're, they never forgot all those Cold War words. But, you know, the reality is also that, um, you know, the the Russians probably still see the United States as their I don't want to say biggest enemy, but, you know, the largest power in the world. And, you know, let's not forget that Russia still has a huge nuclear arsenal and is, you know, a a hugely powerful country with a huge army and a huge military. And, um, you know, the Russians sort of feel that gives them, you know, a certain amount of respect that they should be paid by the world community. And when the United States, instead of, you'll notice that there there were mediators in this, they weren't Americans. The main person who came in and mediated this was uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France. And that's because uh, there's a rotating presidency of the European Union, which France now holds. So he sort of said, okay, I'm going to take the lead here and I'm going to do some shuttle diplomacy and try to get these guys to stop fighting and to implement a peace plan. By the time the the war, the fighting was over, um, there was a, a mood in Russia um, that I heard from people like the foreign minister, um, Sergei Lavrov, where he, they didn't even want to talk to the Americans at all. They were just furious at them. And I think that that furor came out just with, with the old Cold War language that the diplomats had never forgotten. I was really shocked to see, I mean, here in the United States on, you know, on major media outlets and coming from the mouths of our leaders, just this this stuff that I hadn't heard since the mid to late 80s. And it just, it like leapt out full blown as if it had just been asleep. 
I mean, why do you think that that happened on this side? I think that many people here don't really understand Russia. I think that there are so many stereotypes about what Russia is that are just no longer true. Um, for example, you know, I, I spent 14 years living in Russia, and even, you know, two or three years ago, people would ask me questions like, do you have enough to eat? Is there any food in the stores? Do you ha um, hold up a package of cigarettes to uh, stop a ca taxi cab? And, and I sort of had to say, well, you know, actually, no, there are a million supermarkets. We have a place down the street that kind of looks like BJ's Warehouse. It's, you know, a giant food warehouse. And, you know, we've got wine bars now. And, you know, we've got everything. I can buy, you know, grape nuts at my local supermarket if I want to. And and people's understanding of what Russia is was is just really lack, you know, lag behind reality. And that's I think one of the reasons that this Cold War rhetoric comes back because people who don't know Russia assume that it's still really the Soviet Union when it's really much more like um a powerful European nation. I mean, Moscow is a city that looks and feels a lot like Paris or Berlin or, or Warsaw, really. Now that this has ended for the moment, this war, what's happening now and how are we going to be seeing the repercussions of this into the future? My understanding, having not been there right now, is that there's there's rebuilding going on in South Ossetia. Um, but, you know, it's really a stalemate right now. And um, European nations in particular are really pushing for a real political solution, that the two sides, or it's actually four sides, there's the Russians and the Georgians, and then there's the leadership of the two breakaway regions of Georgians, that there there needs to be some real diplomatic negotiations about the fate of those areas. And, and so far, not much has, has really happened because the two sides, uh, the Georgians and, and the Russian side, there's still so much anger over what's happened. Um, that, um, you know, not much has happened. The other thing that's happened since this war in August is is the financial crisis. And believe it or not, I think that that's having a really large role here because both economies, the Georgian and the Russian economies, are, are being really hammered by this financial crisis. And so the war has perhaps had to to take a bit of a back burner to, uh, at least in Russia, for, for sure. The financial crisis is a day-to-day is a -day crisis there, and the government is, is sort of preoccupied at this point dealing with, with its own economic problems. And so perhaps that's put things a little bit on the back burner. But, uh, you know, the war of words is still continuing. The Polish president w was visiting Georgia just a few days ago, and um, he and uh, President Saakashvili s claimed that they had been fired upon by Russians um, while they were trying to visit um, an area right outside of South Ossetia. Now, I obviously can't say if they were shot at by Georgians or Russians or whether it was a provocation or not. People, having seen some of the tape of it, um, you know, it's not clear to me if it, if it was, in fact, a real attack against them or it was some kind of um, faked provocation. I really don't know. But it just goes to show that, that, that the tensions there are still really, really high. And um, people in the European Union, uh, in particular, are, are very interested in, in trying to play a constructive role in, in bringing down some of those tensions. Now, the, one of the big questions here is obviously we're going to have a new president on January 20th. 
And President-elect Obama, during the crisis, um, voiced his support of, of Georgia and the Georgian people. But there's a whole new team coming in now. Um, I, I do know some of the people who've um, been advising President-elect Obama on Russian policy. They're very, very smart. They're people who really, really know modern Russia, who, who are really up to date on what's going on now. And it's going to be very interesting to see if they re, re, retain the Bush administration's policy of being very, you know, anti-Russian and very pro-Georgian, or if they're willing to look at this conflict in a, in a different way, and whether they're able to take in take on any kind of uh, role in, um, you know, resolving some of these what they call frozen conflicts that um, have still not really thought. Now, how are we going to see echoes of what went on this summer in the next few years? The most important question really is what's going to happen to those two areas of Georgia, um, South Ossetia and Abkhazia? They're still hanging out there. They're right up against the Russian border. They're areas where, um, you know, Russia would be delighted to see them either become independent or perhaps even then become part of Russia. Um, Georgia still hasn't admitted that they're gone. Georgia still wants to bring them back into the fold. And, you know, that's they, they just remain a question mark. And it's really not clear what's going to happen. Could there be another war over the, those two territories? Potentially, yes. Well, uh, Beth Noble is an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and she formerly was Moscow bureau chief for CBS News. Thank you so much for coming in, Beth. My pleasure. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org and is in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend. Прибу сердцем дальним синим морем, Бригантина поднимает паруса. Капитан, ответ. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.